Hello, hi, good afternoon. Um, I'm Karai Parisami. I'm calling on behalf of uh, the Institute for Clinical Research here at the NIH uh, KKM Malaysia. I uh, welcome everyone to our new session of webinar series on COVID-19 vaccine. And this is, uh, of course, uh, jointly organized by the Malaysian Society of Infection Control and Infectious Diseases, my ICID, and uh, with the help of the Institute of Clinical Research at NIH. Now, thank you for joining us. Uh, we have several online social media platforms that you can also join in. We welcome healthcare professionals and all of those who are out there who are concerned about vaccines and wanting to gain some additional input on the rollout of the vaccines and questions that may be relevant for your understanding of vaccines. Uh, as usual, we provide a platform for you to ask these questions. And this is through the Slido app. I hope you all are familiar with the use of the Slido app. And uh, you can basically post your questions there. And time permitting, we will try to have uh, those answered. Now, uh, we also provide CPD points. So please do register yourself online. And in case you have missed it, you, know, you can, at the end of the broadcast, again, uh, put back your email address. And you can submit this uh, together for your CPD. Uh, today is a privilege and honor to introduce my uh, friend and a colleague, Dr. Benedict Sim. Uh, he is a, a renowned ID physician who, who, in fact, is in the front line of uh, COVID hospital at uh, Hospital Sungai Bulu. I'm sure you are very familiar with the hospital uh, in dealing with uh, COVID-19 patients. And uh, Dr. Sim has uh, uh, been very front in the work of vaccines as well. They've come up with a guidance document together with many other ID physicians, pharmacists, uh, public health specialists, and also those who have dealt with allergy and epidemiology to provide guidance to healthcare professionals and many others uh, on the vaccines. Today, he will discuss on uh, some of those issues pertaining to vaccines and also offer you some answers to your questions. As you know, our country has rolled out vaccines. We have started with the Pfizer vaccine for the last month, and the next phase of the vaccine will start soon in this month. Healthcare professionals have been in the forefront of COVID-19 pandemic, and here they were prioritized to receive the vaccines. And soon after that, of course, we had many others who were essential workers dealing with COVID-19 either in transportation, in the provision of testing, and uh, also in the care of population with uh, this disease. And so these priority groups have all benefited from the vaccines. We now look forward to the next uh, rollout phase where others who have uh, vulnerabilities and uh, chronic diseases are prioritized to receive uh, vaccines from the several portfolios. Vaccines offer us uh, a way of managing the pandemic in your social circumstances, in your jobs, in how you move around in your residential area, and so and so forth. And therefore, uh, we bring together this idea of vaccines, both in the way we manage uh, the transmission of this COVID-19 and how we mitigate against the symptomatic conditions of this disease and how vaccines play a critical role in the control of COVID-19. Uh, without further ado, I'd like to invite Dr. Benedict Sim to uh, give you uh, a briefing on this uh, topic and also to uh, 
introduce to you the various other topics that will come along over this webinar series. Thank you very much and please enjoy the session and we do look forward to your questions. Dr. Benedict. Thanks, Dr. Kalai. Um, good afternoon, everybody, and uh, thanks for um, uh, spending your afternoon here. Um, so, so my talk is the first out of a series of um, five webinars that will take place um, weekly. And, um, and uh, today, what I'm doing is actually setting the stage for the subsequent weeks. Um, uh, so I will be concentrating on, um, on the, uh, the efficacy of vaccines and this very important question about why we need to move towards uh, vaccines and um, controlling um, uh, COVID-19. And then in the subsequent weeks, um, uh, uh, next week um, uh, coming up, we will have um, uh, a group of patients whom we are, whom, whom all of us are um, uh, understandably uh, concerned about vaccination, which is the elderly and um, those under palliative care. And um, so we've got a panel of um, experts coming uh, next week to address um, vaccination in that group of patients. Um, subsequently, we, the next session, um, two weeks from now, we'll be addressing um, side effects from uh, the vaccines. Um, uh, um, we will leave allergies to the following week because allergies is another, is, is one of the side effects, but, but happens to be um, um, uh, needs its own space. So we have given that a week on its own. Um, that will be on the fourth week. On the third week, we'll be speaking about all the other um, side effects about the the vaccines and um, and uh, how how does it um uh, uh, what are the rates of side effects how severe are they and um, and uh, is it something that we should be concerned or is it something that we can minimize and uh, in the final week we'll be speaking about the uh, vaccines in um, uh, pregnant women and also um, uh, some of the lessons that we have learned from our first phase of the rollout as Dr. Kalai mentioned earlier um, the first phase involved um, healthcare workers and uh, the first phase is uh, almost completely done and um, along the way we have learned some lessons and um, and what are those some of those lessons learned um, I should mention uh, right at the beginning um, about this disclaimer I've given quite a few talks on uh, um, vaccines and um, in a couple of them uh, people have um, said that you didn't give us a disclaimer you know are you paid by any pharmaceutical company are you paid by the government are you paid by NIH to give this talk um, uh, uh, I'm not paid by anybody to give this talk, and so it is a purely an academic uh, exercise. Yeah. Um, this will be what I will cover in the in the, in the next uh, maybe forty minutes or so. Um, the first question I'm going to spend quite a bit of time um, addressing this question, which is: um, Are vaccines really needed? Is COVID nineteen um, you know just a hyped up disease um, by the media? Um, shouldn't we just let nature take its course? After all, um, our world has seen pandemics before and lived through it. Um, or isn't this just another flu, um, flu-like disease? You know, shouldn't we um, just allow it to to take its course? And then um, I will only after after that will I be talking about the efficacy of the vaccines. I will be concentrating mainly on the Pfizer vaccine, uh, simply because um, uh, that's a vaccine which. Um, was rolled out first um, worldwide and also in our country. And um, that's the vaccine with um, uh, the most uh, data uh, 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 that has come out so far. And I will be showing a few slides on some of the other vaccines as well. And um, uh, uh, can it prevent against um, getting 
infected from COVID. As, as you know, um, um, so the vaccines are pretty effective in terms of uh, preventing disease, COVID disease, but it, does it prevent somebody from getting infected uh, with COVID? That was something that um, in the early trials, we didn't know the answer. Now there's some data that can shed light on it. And how long did the vaccines last? Um, the third um, uh, uh, part of my talk, I'll be talking about who should we prioritize for the vaccines. And more important than, um, this is just going to be a list and uh, there's, there's uh, evidence behind it. But um, behind that is actually, um, uh, why do we need to prioritize some people for the vaccines? Yeah? And finally, um, I will be um, sharing a few um, slides about the impact of uh, variants of COVID-19. Um, I will not be able to do this uh, topic uh, complete justice because uh, that will be a talk on its own, uh, viral, viral variants. And, um, and, and really, um, uh, this is a moving target. So if I were to talk about viral variants today versus um, what I'm going to say in a month later, may actually be very different because um, there is a lot more data coming out uh, about uh, viral variants and, um, and um, it is, uh, as I mentioned, a moving target. So I will start the talk by actually um, uh, um, bringing up uh, things that have um, um, have filled some of the headlines going around, um, and 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 this is especially so perhaps not so much in uh, mainstream media, but um, uh, we see this a lot coming out in um, uh, social media. Um, uh, we all are uh, familiar with them. Um, uh, some very prominent people in the past coming up to say that perhaps this um, COVID-19 is being um, uh, hyped up too much and, and um, it, is just a, uh, it is just one of those things that um, uh, you know, we can just um, uh, let it run its course and, um, and, and everything will be well. Okay, um, um, here we have a quote saying that if 80,000 people die from COVID, it will just be roughly equivalent to a bad flu season. Um, in, in, in Western countries, flu comes every winter and it, it kills off um, thousands of people. And uh, perhaps COVID is just another one of these diseases. And um, there are also quite a lot. I, I must use the word alarming um, videos that um, you would find on uh, social media coming in, um, uh, mentioning how these vaccines is a, is a catastrophe, it's, it's a disaster. Um, uh, people um, uh, who are apparently doctors around the world issuing um, uh, uh, dire warnings not to get the vaccine. Um, you've got um, uh, um, anti-vaxxers coming out with a series of um, videos, and then um, you've got um, um, uh, you know uh, videos that target uh, the, the populace, and um, you know with a lot of claims like this. You know the vaccine doesn't provide immunity, doesn't eliminate the virus, doesn't prevent death. So why are you getting it? Um, so, uh, some of us might be tempted to laugh off um, um, some of these uh, um, uh, claims that come out um, through the alternative media or through social media. Um, but I've spoken to many people, I've given many talks around, and, um, and I've spoken to many people as well. And, 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 and these are, you know, graduates and uh, these are some doctors themselves. And, uh, and, and, and these are concerns that people really have within them. And, um, and, uh, and, and, and so I think it is important to actually uh, address some of these, um, uh, 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 yeah, some of, some of these questions hit on. Um, these are the most recent numbers that came out uh, yesterday. In Malaysia, we have seen 355, uh, 353,000 um, uh, 
notified to have COVID out of which 1,300 have died, and that makes it about 0.37% of um, um, deaths. So um, uh, um, every 100 people getting COVID, 0.37 or 0.4% of people die. Um, the range of death is, of course, um, if you go by countries, it's a, there's a wide range. On one end, you've got um, uh, war-torn countries like Yemen having a one out of every five people diagnosed with COVID dying. Uh, on the other hand, you have uh, other countries which uh, uh, spoil the market and um, have, a, have a, a mortality rate of just 0.05%. Um, a lot of this would have to do on um, who is being tested and how much testing is being done. And because um, we all know that the mortality rates are um, maybe very small in uh, young age, uh, if it is a younger age group that get it. Um, one slide on this, um, the case fatality rates, what I showed you was the case fatality rates and what these case fatality rates actually do not tell us, what it misses out. The, the first thing is that um, uh, reports of death um, will lag behind the cases. Um, and that's because um, if you were to come to my hospital's ICU now, you will find that uh, ICUs are still uh, full and um, and you've got patients who have been in ICU for two weeks. You've got patients who have been in ICU for more than two months, and um, these patients um, may not be able to survive that COVID. Um, so they come out as a number for having um, contracted COVID, but uh, the ultimate outcome of the disease hasn't taken place yet. So the death rate on, um, always lags behind the, the 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 number of people who have COVID. Of course, if you're talking about a, a disease that's been going on for a year, then uh, this number would not be very significant. Um, the other issue of why the case fatality rates may not um, show it up is because um, sometimes deaths are classified differently. So um, if somebody has been in a um, uh, hospital for a long time, he has received a lot of steroids, he ended up being uh, bit bound because of um, severe COVID. Um, and uh, let's say he gets a bit sore or he gets, um, and, and he's still on um High, high doses of um, immunosuppressants, um, steroid treatment. If they were to get them, in, um, uh, they may have recovered from their COVID um, uh, now, but later on they get a nosocomial infection or get, get some other um, uh, complication from being uh, bed bound and then that can lead to death uh, later on in the disease and that may not be classified as COVID death. Of course, you've got people who have died um, who were never tested for COVID, um, uh, because it was never suspected that they had COVID um, uh, mainly. Yeah? Um, and of course, uh, there are patients that actually were discharged home and actually um, succumbed at home and uh, were never brought back to the hospital. And so this may not um, uh, be classified as COVID deaths as well. There are indirect um, causes of death. And this is a, 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 something that I'll be showing more data later on. Um, uh, so, so this term um, collateral damage comes about because, um, um, for example, my hospital, Hospital Sungai Bulu, is a, is a full COVID hospital right now. And um, prior to um, February or March um, uh, 2020, it was a very busy hospital. Um, it was a 900-bedded hospital and, um, and we had uh, patients coming in, um, uh, neurosurgical patients coming in, patients with... Um, um, uh, dengue, with HIV, with plastic surgery, with um, other surgeries. Um, they were all coming to hospitals. Um, when Hospital Sungai Bulo converted to become a full COVID hospital, all these patients had to go elsewhere. And, um, and, uh, and understandably, there will be some patients that actually 
um, uh, disadvantaged simply because um, because this whole COVID thing has taken taken up a lot of resources, taken up a lot of space, and um, and, um, and and they get left behind. Yeah? So and 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 some of it has even um, resulted in death. So there are indirect causes of death um, due to this COVID outbreak. And it doesn't take into account the morbidity of COVID. That's another thing that I'll be elaborating more later on. Um, uh, so we talk about mortality from COVID, but there's also a substantial morbidity from COVID. Um, patients who actually get long-term um, side effects of um, uh, so long-term complications of COVID. And uh, finally, it's um, um, uh, when we talk about these numbers at 0.4% or 1% mortality rate, we are not looking at it from the perspective of a patient. Um, and that's what I will try to do later on as well. I'm looking at it from the perspective of a patient. I think um, generally COVID-19 deaths are not um, over um, uh, reported uh, unless you are like this guy uh, uh, who decides to call everything as a COVID death. So this is a slide that I uh, quite frequently show in uh, my talks um, uh, to start off my talks. These um, are actually data from our own um, experience in Malaysia, the first uh, 6,000 plus um, COVID patients in Malaysia who were hospitalized in the COVID hospitals. Um, so if you start off with that number, about half of them actually had asymptomatic infection, the other half uh, had symptoms. Out of those who had symptoms, some um, 88% of them um, uh, just the symptoms were mild, basically they had the URTI. About 12% of them went on to get severe disease. Severe disease is defined as page, uh, the patient needing oxygen. Um, once the patient needs oxygen, then there's a 62% chance of them actually eventually needing ICU care, whereas some 37% of them um, need oxygen, but they eventually get discharged without needing ICU care. And, um, and out of those that actually go to ICU, these were the early days. Uh, uh, um, out of those who actually went to ICU, more than a third of them actually didn't make it out alive. Yeah. So the reason why I show this is because um, um, the death rate may be 0.4% if you start off from here. But if you find yourself in hospital and um, you are one of these 379 patients who actually get severe disease, then suddenly the 0.4% the, the mortality doesn't mean anything anymore because the, 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 the mortality rate for patients who have reached this point is actually quite substantial. Yeah, so um, uh, because of that, I'm, I, I'm saying that it's important to look from the patient's um, perspective as well. The other thing that, um, um, the other perspective to look at it will also be from the age per, uh, perspective. So um, uh, um, a 0.4% mortality, it's uh, very real if you are in your fourth, if you are below the age of 40, where the mortality rates are actually um, uh, pretty low. Yeah. But once you cross into the next decade of life and the subsequent decades of life, then you can see that the mortality rates start to climb, um, escalate quite quickly. Yeah. So um, uh, um, if you are in your sixth decade of life, you know, the age of 60, then um, for every 100, so you have a party with uh, 100 of your classmates and, um, and um, all 100 get COVID, two of them will not make it out in life. Yeah. And uh, you move down, then uh, uh, the next bracket of uh, each bracket will get you know, five to six percent uh, not making it out alive. One in eight in the, in the eighth decade of life will succumb to the disease. Above the age of 80, the mortality is like one in every four, one in every five patients um, will succumb to the disease. This is the other thing that I wanted to point out. I'm surprised that this um, 
report didn't get that much headlines. Um, uh, this is where I, I, I mentioned about um, um, uh, deaths being um, uh, indirect deaths being um, uh, COVID leading to, 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 to uh, uh, they may not be classified as COVID deaths. Because for example, if you look at this, uh, this report came out on the 10th of uh, February and uh, they were homing in on um, the statistics in Sabah. And um, so if you look at the death rates uh, a year before, in the last uh, quarter of uh, 2019, you know, there were 2,800 deaths. In 2020, it was 3,700 deaths, which was a 30% rise. As we all know, um, uh, Sabah saw a, um, a severe COVID outbreak um, in, the, in the last uh, three months of um, uh, the calendar year last year. Um, but if you look at the number of um, certified COVID deaths, it was 252 but the excess deaths were actually much more than 252. So there were patients who, there were people that died, perhaps um, were not tested for COVID or were missed that they had COVID, or perhaps um, they were just too scared to come to hospitals and they had heart attacks or they had strokes or they had um, cancers and they actually chose to, you know, not to present to hospitals or you know, hospitals couldn't take them in. You know, so so um, uh, um, the, the excess deaths are actually much more than the COVID deaths. And uh, that's not the, just the case in, um, um, in our own country. This report just came out earlier in the week. Um, if you look at the excess deaths in the U.S., um, so they looked at them um, from the beginning of March until the end of the year last year. Um, and, and, and they've got um, data that goes back several years. So um, uh, they can tell you how many people are expected to die in the US in 2020 based on the last five years data. Yeah. Um, so they look at the trend over the last five years. But these were the observed, observed deaths. And, um, and uh, so the excess deaths were actually... 500 over 1,000, out of which about 370,000 were directly due to COVID. But um, so about 72% of them, they actually said it was due to COVID. And, um, and the, the remainder um, uh, uh, fell into other categories, but we can probably surmise that they were indirect causes of uh, uh, COVID deaths as well. Yeah? And um, uh, the same report actually showed that, you know, uh, with that number of um, um, uh, um, people dying from COVID, this is until 2021, um, it actually rivals, uh, at least in the US, it actually rivals. So you've got um, uh, influenza pandemics that have hit the world. Um, uh, uh, you've got the Spanish flu 100 years ago, and then you've got the Hong Kong flu and all that um, that have uh, emerged over the years. But if you look at the mortality rates, um, uh, they, they, they pale behind, um, uh, perhaps unless we consider the Spanish flu um, uh, way back 100 years ago. It was that was the last time we saw that many deaths happening uh, due to one uh, uh, one respiratory outbreak. Uh. Okay, so um, these were the deaths in the U.S. for 2020, as I mentioned. Um, um so you got five years data. So every year it's like you know, uh, 2.7 million, 2.7, 2.8, 2.8, 2.8 million. Suddenly you got 3.3 million deaths. And um, I highlighted a few other deaths um that have um, increased significantly. Um, heart disease, unintentional injuries, strokes, Alzheimer's disease, diabetes, uh, kidney disease, all of this increased substantially in the year uh, where there was uh, COVID as well. So perhaps uh, there were patients with heart disease, with strokes, with diabetes, with kidney disease, who actually um, uh, perhaps contracted COVID earlier on and uh, that led to many more deaths 
um, in, in that category of patients um, later on, um, uh, or perhaps they were, you know, they, they were not tested for COVID. I also want to make the case that um, beyond mortalities, um, um, uh, that we should also look at patients who actually get severe disease. Severe disease here is defined as those that actually need oxygen. And, um, and uh, if we look at it um, uh, in our own uh, local Malaysian data, um, this is the, again, it goes by age group. So uh, um, if, if you are 40 and below, about one plus percent of people actually require oxygen. So for every 100 people uh, below the age of 40, if you get COVID, maybe only one person will need oxygen. But once you reach the age of um, uh, 50s to 60s, then it's eight in the 100 who need oxygen. Uh, once you reach above 70, it's it's quarter of the of the of the patients um, uh, who contract COVID need oxygen. Also depends on whether you've got comorbidities, and all of this is important when we later talk about uh, which are the priority groups that should get the vaccines first. Yeah. So um, as you have uh, comorbidities, um, uh, you get a much higher um, uh, chance of getting severe COVID. And these are some of the comorbidities that we were talking about: hypertension, diabetes, chronic kidney disease, and all that. Um, these are some of the complications that um, can occur in COVID-19. And if um, your eyesight is as poor as mine, I've blown it up here. So you've got post-insensitive care syndrome, venous thromboembolisms, cardiovascular complications, acute kidney injuries, and those were all um, uh, uh, high likelihood. Then you've got neurological complications. So the list, and, and, and these conditions aren't anything to, be, to, to laugh at. Huh? They are actually fairly um, severe complications. Um, uh, this report came out again um, uh, not too long ago in, uh, uh, from the UK. Uh, they looked at um, almost 87,000 uh, people who were hospitalized with, um, with uh, COVID, and they actually compared it to a control group. Okay, A control group, um, uh, so it was uh, a control for baseline characteristics of age and sex and ethnicity and all that. And they found that um, uh, patients with um, uh, COVID-19, these were control groups of people who were admitted into hospital but without COVID-19. And you find that um, uh, eventually, when they actually called them up later on, how many of them had died? 12.3% um, uh, of patients um, uh, COVID. This was after they left hospital. Uh, these were not hospital deaths. This was after leaving hospital, eventually up to 12.3% of them succumbed, uh, uh, died um, by the time they received the phone call as compared to 1.7% of them in the control group. Uh, the readmission rate for people with um, um, who were hospitalized for COVID was 30% as compared to the control group being 10%. And if you look at all um, uh, the events, um, uh, sorry, I just realized I should turn on the laser pointer. Um, uh, so if you look at the, 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 the complications, um, so you've got the major adverse cardiovascular events um, in the in the COVID group being much higher than in control groups and um, and uh, and uh, patients with newly diagnosed adverse cardiovascular events, whether it's heart failure or whether it's uh, heart attacks or whether it's strokes, um, they are much higher compared to the control group. So um, uh, patients with COVID, um, uh, even if they survive um, COVID, um, uh, but they they happen to get severe COVID, many of them actually get complications that never leave them. Um, uh, back to their normal cells again. This is um, another two studies uh, um, uh, uh, came out. This one just shows you that up to six months later, a substantial amount of them actually still have symptoms of COVID uh, after being discharged. 
And these are some of their symptoms, um, cognitive impairment out of 177 people, um, 61 had still had cognitive impairment, um, 21 had dysfunctional breathing, 33% uh, of them had um, uh, a CT scan showed fibrotic lesions, uh, psychiatric symptoms, um, uh, well, 60 of them actually had no symptoms. Yeah? So um, uh, this was four months later after they were um, uh, hospitalized. Is COVID just a bad flu? Um, uh, this paper um, uh, tries to answer it. Um, this one compares um, COVID-19 and seasonal influenza. So if you look at the seasonal influenza and uh, COVID-19 outcomes here, in terms of death, the hazard ratio for COVID-19 is um, uh, five times higher, mechanical ventilation four times higher, intensive care maybe 2.5 times higher. We have a lot more excess outcomes for 100 patients who are hospitalized. Um, with um, uh, COVID-19, 16 more deaths, uh, 11 more uh, mechanical ventilations, 20 more ICU admissions. The length of stay is, is increased. Um, uh, and, and this is by pictorial um, looking at, um, uh, this is until two months after, after um, uh, getting hospitalized for um, um, COVID or um, seasonal influenza. And you can see the lines really diverge in terms of deaths, in terms of ventilator use, in terms of admissions into ICU. So the resources that they take up are much higher and that leads to much poorer outcomes com uh, compared to influenza. Um, this is another way of looking at it. Another study, um, uh, these are the rates of, um, so, so, so um, uh, 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 this one, if, 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 if the lines are um, uh, uh, to the right of um, uh, this line of unity, then it is more um, the relative risk of uh, getting ARDS with COVID is that much time uh, more compared to influenza, pneumothoraces uh, are more, DICs are more, acute myocarditis is more, intracranial hemorrhages are more, dialysis is more, okay? And um, again, the length of stay is increased, ICU admissions are uh, 35% versus 17%, in hospital mortality, 21% versus 4%. And uh, this one just came out this morning, actually. Um, uh, these are actually six-month neurological and psychiatric outcomes. In them. So you've got here hundreds of thousands of survivors of COVID, and um, they look back um, six months later. And um, this is comparing COVID together with other respiratory tract infections, so includes pneumonias, includes influenzas. And you find that the, um, even up to six months, um, patients with COVID have more intracranial hemorrhage, more ischemic strokes, more nerve root uh, 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 problems and you know myo, uh, myoneural junction and muscle disease. Um, these are for patients who are hospitalized for COVID. So obviously, I think um, uh, COVID is much more significant than um, uh, um, influenza. But influenza sort of like gives you uh, um, a picture of, um, of um, or, or at least uh, or at least. Uh, uh, a baseline for what to compare COVID with. Um, I just put in this one slide. Um, um, there are also people that comment that um, perhaps we should just let COVID uh, run its natural course, you know, um, um, and we get hit, herd immunity through the natural infection way. Um, many of you would have heard of this uh, um, city of Manaus. Manaus is in the upper reaches of the uh, uh, um, Amazon River. And um, it is a city by itself. It's like you know two million inhabitants. It was badly hit by COVID um, in the in the middle of last year. We were seeing up to seventy deaths every day. 
by the way, these are the mass graves that they have to dig um, uh, uh, for Manaus um, uh, uh, when it hit, hit its peak um, in the middle of last year. Um, and uh, by the time September came, um, from studies, from the, they, they looked at the blood bank um, from blood donor samples and they concluded that 70% of the people in Manaus actually already um, contracted COVID. And um, so by the end of the year, they decided that they did not need any more SOPs, they didn't need any more lockdowns. Um, uh, uh, so, um, so many people had already gotten the disease and so no more restrictions were needed, masks were not needed. And um, so they released every, all the restrictions. By January, um, the death rates in uh, Manaus um, climbed even higher than um, uh, um, than uh, in the year before. Yeah, um, even in a population that was supposedly um, having um, uh, having gone through natural uh, infection, and uh, Manaus was also the sort of like the nidus for um, uh, Brazil. Eventually, what happened in Manaus uh, reached the rest of Brazil, and um, and um, after a few weeks ago, we were reading headlines that um, Brazil was actually um, uh, uh, probably one of the worst hit countries in um, in the in, in the whole world when it came to COVID. So with that um, background um, on the, um, on the, on the, what happens if we let COVID run its course and um, and, uh, and that we uh, trivialize COVID, um, uh, um, I'm bringing to the um, to this question is whether the vaccines that we have now whether they are effective for COVID. By now, many of you would have heard on the uh, on the trial. Um, uh, reports of uh, COVID. So um, I like to stress that um, the numbers involved in this, um, so this is the, the, the data from the Pfizer-BioNTech um, uh, vaccine and, um, and uh, they had 20,000 in each arm. Okay, so half of the people got placebo, half of the people got the, got the vaccine. The patients obviously didn't know what, what they were receiving and the doctors didn't know what they were. Um, uh, all, all we knew is that they were given a code and that um, and that um, the and that uh, um, uh, you know the, the, the code will be um, what do you call that uh, decoded later on to know whether they they actually had uh, the vaccine or the placebo. Yeah? And so um, uh, what happened is that um, after two weeks, the graphs started to 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 to, to split up. And uh, when later on, when they reached one hundred and seventy cases. Um, uh, they found that they, they, they unblinded the trial and they found that um, 162 of the 170 who contracted COVID actually received the placebo and eight of them received the um, uh, uh, COVID vaccine. So it is still possible to get um, COVID after you receive the vaccine. Eight people did out of um, 18,000 people over here, uh, whereas 162 out of 18,000 people in the placebo arm contracted COVID. Yeah? Um, uh, so based on this, we come to the vaccine efficacy of 95%. I think it is important to understand these numbers because uh, many in the public are confused and, um, and, um, and, uh, and, and people are actually saying 95% efficacy means 5% of the population will, after getting vaccinated will still get COVID or 5% will get severe disease. No, that's not the case. Yeah? Um, it, it's just that your likelihood of getting COVID drops by 20 times. Yeah? Um, uh, um, if you have received the COVID versus somebody who has not received the, the, the vaccine yet. Um, this was population data that came out of, um, of uh, Israel. So um, um, in the initial clinical trial of Pfizer, we were talking about 40,000 people. Here you are talking about the first million people who received 
the vaccine, um, uh, 600,000 who received the vaccine versus the next 600,000 who had yet to receive the vaccine. So this was done in um, Israel. And if you find, again, after two weeks, the, the, the lines um, um, uh, start to move away from each other. Um, and uh, here they looked at different outcomes. They look at documented um, COVID infection. So uh, were people actually being protected from uh, from being infected with COVID? Were they protected from getting symptomatic COVID? Were they protected from hospitalization, protected from severe COVID, or protected from deaths due to COVID? And if you see all of this, there's um, uh, um, here the orange line is um, those who didn't, who, who, who had not gotten the, the vaccine yet, and the blue line is those who, who were vaccinated. And if you look, um, uh, um, uh, there was a significant difference starting from two weeks after getting the vaccines across the board, whether it's um, deaths, of course, there's a huge um, uh, benefit getting the vaccine, severe disease, huge benefit, but also for hospitalization, symptomatic disease, and even contracting COVID itself. Okay, And, um, and, and when they looked at these numbers, they found that it was um, um, actually 90% um, uh, efficacy in terms of protecting you from actually contracting COVID. Uh, this is data that um, uh, came out from the U US uh, in the uh, mortality and mobility review, um, weekly review. And um, so they looked among healthcare workers. Okay. And so um, uh, you know, it was like um, uh, 160 person, 160,000. 116,000 person days they looked at. And um, so in the unvaccinated um, uh, group, there were 1.38 um, uh, cases of COVID for every 1,000 person days. And um, those who are partially immunized that come down, partially immunized, that means have not gotten the two doses of the vaccine or before the two weeks um, were up after the getting the second dose of the vaccine. And there was some 80% uh, uh, vaccine effectiveness there. Okay, and after being fully immunized, more than 14 days after getting the second dose, there was a 90% vaccine effectiveness. So this is real life data. This is not clinical trials. So um, this is effectiveness data. Um, this is a um, study in, I think, Scotland. Yeah, um, uh, Scotland, they actually showed that, um, again, it was among healthcare workers and uh, very wordy here. There were no nice graphs that I could, um, I could cut out and paste but basically what it showed was actually household members of vaccinated healthcare workers had a lower risk of COVID compared to household members of unvaccinated um, uh, healthcare workers and uh, you know it was like 9.4 versus 5.9 okay and then the, and then they went to look at other things hospitalization and all that kind of thing so um, uh, it didn't just protect the healthcare worker it protected the household members you know the uh, the elderly mother, the elderly father, the children of the healthcare worker. Um, again, this is a, um, uh, showing that those who are not vaccinated, this is the rates of um, um, among the employees. Um, uh, these were the rates of getting COVID. This was the rates after you're partially uh, vaccinated. This was the rates once they were fully vaccinated. And um, uh, so, so this was in the US when the vaccine, when the vaccination program started in the middle of December. Um, this gray lines here are what the expected rates were going to be if there was no looking at the trends of um, COVID going up during that time, what would have happened if there was no vaccine given. Okay, and uh, this white dots actually show what actually did happen. Okay. Two line actually tells us when the two weeks after the vaccine 
um, uh, were reached and um, and uh, the rates really dropped. Okay, I which I thought was important to highlight here. Um, it is understandable that um, once people get the vaccines, that um, they let their hair down or they um, uh, or they um, uh, um, you know um, do away with some of the precautions and um, and uh, and uh, it was um, it was worrying enough for uh, actually um, issue this um, uh, statement that stronger warnings are actually needed to curb social discrimination. Because what was happening was that these people, after being uh, vaccinated, um, they were actually um, uh, you know, uh, having meals together and um, taking off their mask. And I think we saw some of that happening even among Malaysian healthcare workers as well. It is understandable, you know, people have been in lockdown, people have been, um, have been had to follow SOPs for a long time. And um, and um, some people after getting the vaccine felt that it was um, you know that they could take their chances. Uh, no, the vaccine after you get the two doses, and even after the second dose, it's two weeks later. So all in, we are talking about like you know if you get the Pfizer vaccine, it's probably like six weeks after the start of your first uh, uh, jab. So don't um, uh, um, you know you still need to do the SOPs at least for the short um, uh, for the immediate uh, period after vaccination. Uh, this one again just came out just a few days ago, and um, many of you would have seen this report because it's made its way into the mainstream press as well. Where the Pfizer, those who were vaccinated in a clinical trial, um, uh, those 40,000 people, um, they followed them up, and six months later, the rates of protection were still 90 over percent. Yeah, so um, the the efficacy of the of the vaccines are uh, held even up to six months after getting the vaccines. So um. Uh, so just summary, the, the vaccines um, do three levels of protection. They protect the person who is being vaccinated. I showed you from the Scotland study that it also protects your family members who are vaccinated. And of course, ideally, we would all like to see one day is actually immunity happening where enough people are vaccinated in society so that those who for, um, for some reason are unable to be vaccinated, maybe if they were allergic to the vaccines or for some reason they missed out on the vaccines, at least they will be surrounded by people who are vaccinated and through that way the, the, the RO just drops um, uh, dramatically and then we see again with this uh, problem. Um, of course Pfizer is not the only vaccine. Um, uh, uh, you have heard news reports that we are bringing in um, AstraZeneca, um, Sinovac is already in the country and there's CanSino that will also be brought in. CanSino is unique because there's only, uh, it only needs one dose. Okay. Um, I will spend a bit of um, a few slides on these other uh, vaccines. This is the scan sino data. This is um, in the phase two trial. This uh, adenovirus uh, five um, uh, vector. Um, so 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 the, the the genes coding for the for the spike protein is um is uh, latched on to this adenovirus five, um, which is human beings. And uh, they tried with two doses um, and that versus placebo. And um, they looked at the response after 28 days. And uh, this was the back, back baseline data. And the baseline data was basically the same. If you look at percentages, the, the uh, male female distribution was the same, age was the same, BMI was the same, and the baseline antibody levels were all the same. And um, when you look at the, if you compare the geometric uh, mean titers of uh, antibodies, um, um, uh, uh, for those who have these were the two doses of the vaccine, they were basically the same. 
the response were not statistically significant, but they were different compared to placebo. And this was after day 28. Yeah. And um, uh, this was um, neutralizing antibodies for the live um, COVID virus. This was a pseudo COVID virus whereby they put the spike protein on another virus and they said the, the vaccine can work um, uh, just as well. And, uh, and the two different doses um, uh, worked um, uh, just as well as each other, but much better than placebo. Um, there's also Sinovac vaccine. There's some concern about Sinovac vaccine, um, um, uh, uh, whether it, is, uh, uh, it can be licensed to be used in uh, patients uh, 60 years and above. So I just uh, picked out some, um, uh, uh, some of the experiences from worldwide. In Chile, they are using it. It was concluded that the vaccine was well tolerated, induces a response, humoral, uh, humoral response in uh, 60 years and older, supporting the use of vaccine in that population. Um, uh, Indonesia, they have some limited data. Um, Turkey, they, they're also vaccinating the, the elderly. Um, uh, so is Hong Kong. They feel that the benefit outweighs the risk. And, um, and uh, at the moment, the data is not out yet for, for Thailand. Then, uh, based on phase three um, uh, data, the, the vaccine is at least 50% protection against mild to severe COVID. Um, uh, sorry, very mild to severe COVID, and then 83% um, uh, protection from mild to severe COVID, 100% against severe COVID protection. And um, in those uh, more than 60 years old, um, uh, you know, the, the vaccine does give a 51% protection. And um, so this was some of the data that we could, we could, we could gather now. So, um, uh, and they also looked at um, pharmacovigilance. Um, I won't go through this. Uh, the details, uh, but basically the, the, the vaccine was found to be actually very safe in patients who are above the age of um, uh, 60. So in Brazil, 55% um, uh, uh, of the people who are vaccinated are above the age of 60. In Turkey, it's 80%. In Chile, it's uh, one third of them who are vaccinated above the age of 60. So altogether, you've got like 21 million people around the world who have already received the uh, Sinovac vaccine above the age of 60. Um, just one slide on um, AstraZeneca in terms of the efficacy. I won't be talking about the side effects of um, uh, this vaccine because that will be covered by the, the subsequent week's uh, webinars. Yeah, but in terms of the efficacy, um, uh, this uh, AstraZeneca vaccine um, uh, made the headlines because um, uh, um, it was um, uh, sort of like a not-for-profit um, uh, vaccine and um, it didn't need any special refrigeration um, to be stored. So it sounded like the, like the people's vaccine, you know, and, um, and it was also found that it was 70% uh, um, efficacious. And, um, and, uh, and uh, there was a small group of people who actually received about 2,000 people out of the, the 7,000 people who actually got the wrong dose the first time around, and they seem to have been um, better protected um, they seem to have been better protected compared to those who received the full doses, but the dense intervals left, so it may not be really significant. But overall, there was a 70% uh, uh, protection um, against uh, getting symptomatic COVID. And when it came to uh, getting severe, uh, uh, the, the protection was very, very good. Yeah, I think uh, there were 10 people that were hospitalized. I think two people died. Uh, and, um, and uh, all of those who are hospitalized and died were those that received placebo. So um, uh, I've showed this slide earlier talking about them. Um, so who should be prioritized for the vaccine? It is very obvious that 
the older a person is, um, the higher, the, the more need for them to get uh, vaccinated because um, um, uh, uh, they are more likely to succumb from the disease, they are more likely to fear disease, okay, and those with disease. Uh, yeah. So based on this, um, uh, uh, um, this is what the guidelines will look. There will be a guidelines coming out very soon, and uh, this is what the guidelines includes. So people people who are immunocompromised, um, people um, uh, transplant recipients, um, um, uh, hematological malignancies, people with cancers, with autoimmune diseases, um, systemic steroids, immunosuppressed patients, a subgroup of HIV patients, splenectomized patients, and uh, patients with chronic diseases, uh, heart, um, uh, chronic heart disease, kidney disease, liver disease, um, strokes, DIAs, uh, Down syndrome, uh, chronic respiratory illness, Okay, um, COPDs, uh, severe asthma, bronchiectasis, lung fibrosis, and then um, diabetes patients, uh, patients who are obese. Um, uh, uh, the more obese you are, the higher your risk of uh, getting severe disease, uh, patients with severe mental illness. So these are the groups that will be prioritized. And uh, this was actually adapted from the um, Green Book from the Public Health uh, England uh, Handbook. And finally, a few slides on uh, um, COVID-19 uh, variants. What is uh, a variant? A variant is um, um, uh, COVID-19 strain um, uh, earns the title of um, being a variant of concern if it has been demonstrated to cause increase in transmission or in virulence or a change in the clinical presentation or it escapes from immunity that was from natural infection, for example, the P1 infection. And the P1 variant that affected Manaus in Brazil, or there's a decreased effectiveness in public health or clinical countermeasures. So anything that um, uh, sabotages our capability of dealing with um, uh, COVID will be, um, uh, if that variant causes it, then it becomes a variant of concern. Okay, whether the effectiveness in terms of vaccination, in terms of treatment, uh, the treatment that we are giving, or in terms of thing, uh, some variants also may elude certain uh, testing uh, kits as well. So um, these are some of the potential consequences of emerging variants. Um, so uh, we've got B117, B1, B1351. Um, uh, this um, was discovered in the UK. This was discovered in uh, South Africa. And uh, both of them have led to increased transmission. Uh, B117 increased the um, uh, certain diagnostic tests, uh, B117 uh, can, can elude it, although uh, PCS, um, uh, if it targets multiple uh, targets, not the rapid PCRs, but the conventional PCRs, can, um, uh, it has decreased uh, susceptibility to monoclonal antibodies, and both have shown decreased susceptibility, you know, um, uh, or convalescent plasma. Um, if it can evade natural or vaccine immunity, uh, in unity, and that has been shown for B one five three one strain from South Africa, and as I mentioned, the P one uh, uh, variant uh, seems to evade uh, natural acquired immunity. So these are some of the variants that uh, um, people have got eyes on. There are a lot of other variants as well. Um, these three are by far the, the biggest uh, headache. So they have got to know whether a variant is of 
of concern or not they've got this um checkerboard uh, type of uh, thing you know um, uh, depending on the indicator as i mentioned earlier the transmissibility the severity the susceptibility and all that so they've got a traffic light system to know whether it is uh, very serious or whether it is uh, warrants attention or whether it's not very really different from the, 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 the what we normally see okay so for example the one variant and uh, the main thing that is of concern is that the vaccine derived immunity may not be seen very well uh, uh, with this variant so uh of the potential implications for um, at least the, the vaccine because this is the most um, the best studied vaccine so far um, for the UK variant, it seems that um, the Pfizer vaccine will still um, work very well, but not so much in the case of the South African variant, the 1351, although it does show that um, it still works against uh, preventing severe disease. Okay? Um, uh, 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 at least, the, the, sorry, this is the Pfizer one, it's still, although there's a reduction in the neutralization uh, activity, but those who were vaccinated with the Pfizer vaccine um, were much less likely to get severe disease, even though it didn't protect them, um, didn't protect them that. So the impact of these uh, vaccines efficacy real world setting with these variants, not quite known, like I said um, earlier, this, uh, this is a moving target. So um, uh, that brings me up to my last slide. Um, <clears throat> in summary, I just wanted to read, don't be fooled by looking at case fatality rates because there are many um, things that the case fatality rates do not show us and, uh, and especially so it doesn't talk about the morbidity from, from COVID and it doesn't look at um, um, uh, COVID from the perspective of somebody who actually has contracted COVID. Um, naturally, allowing COVID to run its course doesn't sound like a good idea at all. Um, uh, uh, the disease can come and can come again in different waves um, and, uh, you know, and, and, and it really looks like uh, you know we do need um, uh, uh, something else apart from the current public health interventions to give us a hope of normalizing uh, things again. The current vaccines are effective against death, are effective against severe disease, and there's already data now that show that they're up to 90% effective against uh, transmission of COVID as well. Um, uh, we need to prioritize the elderly, we need to prioritize those comorbidities because don't protect them first, then the hospitals will continue to be. Um, uh, uh, we will continue to see the the, 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 the worst of COVID nineteen, which is death and severe disease. Uh, it's important to know that we are not out of the woods yet. Um, uh, despite being vaccinated, um, uh, even after vaccines, you know, it takes up to you know six weeks for the vaccines to to fully work the double dose vaccines. And even then, um, uh, there's still a 10% chance of contracting COVID. So while COVID does um, uh, protect, does the vaccines do protect you against getting COVID, it is not a foolproof proof method. Yeah? Um, and viral variants are of concern, uh, but do seem to protect against um, severe disease. Um, uh, so in terms of what really, really counts the vac vaccines, even though the viral variants are of concern, but um, uh, the vaccines do seem to work um, uh, preventing severe disease or preventing deaths. Okay, with that, I come to the end of my presentation. Thank you. Hi, Dr. Ben. Thank you so much for that. I, I tremendously enjoyed what you said. And I know a lot of facts and figures were displayed, but 
it gave clarity uh, to the understanding of the COVID situation, the at-risk groups, and those who are, you know, sometimes uh, uh, fixated on case fatality rate to actually sub analyze the data showing as you age or if you're hospitalized with symptoms, your mortality risk is much higher. And uh, also the way the vaccine uh, has been uh, targeted to certain um, variants and uh, how the efficacy data is uh, used to determine some of those issues pertaining to vaccination. Uh, I think there's some, some um, interest, of course, in wanting to ask uh, specific questions on vaccines uh, and by and by brand, I'm just going to start answering, uh, I mean, getting some questions uh, to you and see whether we can get it rolling. Uh, the first question that I would like to um, uh, bring up is this one here. Uh, should we be concerned uh, about China vaccine uh, only offering 50% efficacy versus Pfizer, especially for elders above 65 with poor morbids? Thank you. Could you have a look at that uh, rather than addressing the brand? Perhaps just uh, offer your insight into efficacies that is uh, different among the different platforms. So I think uh, when we look at the um, uh, vaccine efficacy, um, um, uh, as I mentioned earlier, uh, there are different ways of measuring the efficacy. And uh, what we are most interested in, especially in that age group, is can it prevent death? Can it prevent severe disease? And that is what um, I, I think we should be most concerned about. And, um, and for that, I think that all the vaccines have shown to have uh, comparable efficacy. Yes, there may be some differences between um, uh, the vaccines. Um, and that's because um, if you look at how the trials are, uh, are carried out as well, there are differences um, in, the, in the methodology. Um, uh, but really, they, they, they all seem to give protection against death and severe disease, which is, the, I think, the most important outcome of um, uh, these vaccines. Um, uh, we shouldn't, I think, also be spoiled by, um, um, uh, 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 you know, that the vac uh, vaccine is only worthwhile getting if it is 90% protective. Um, all of us, um, uh, we know that in, uh, influenza vaccines, influenza is a much milder disease, and yet we know that in a, a subgroup of patients, uh, influenza can be a deadly disease. Influenza um, uh, uh, vaccine efficacy never reaches anywhere near 90% um, uh, every year in the vaccines that, that come out. In fact, uh, reaching 60% is considered a very, very good vaccine year already. You know, um, uh, so I think um, uh, as long as it can give us some amount of protection um, against getting severe disease, I think that's something that uh, we should really be very thankful about. And, um, and, uh, and uh, it, it works very strategically uh, because there's a, um, uh, I think it's much more important for, 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 for many people to get a vaccine that is easily available rather than um, uh, just, you know, everybody uh, wanting to get just one um, uh, vaccine, um, uh, which is difficult to get, um, uh, but may show to, to have a bit better um, efficacy. And so I wouldn't be overly concerned about the differences in the efficacy. Yeah, thank you, Dr. Ben. I think, yeah, I concur with that uh, because I know that in the vaccine, as you illustrated through your case examples of admission and mortality, the, the primary aim of the vaccine is to mitigate against severe form of the COVID and uh, certainly death from hospitalization uh, related problems. And the availability of vaccine, as you correctly pointed out, uh, in the rollout, we need more people to be vaccinated uh, to achieve a certain level of uh, 
mitigation against community level uh, disease um, situation. Right, uh, I'm going to bring up another question. This is quite uh, popular here too. Um, right, so given that the patients are concerned about vaccine side effects, um, how are clinicians um, able to counsel them about these styles? I think on this question, uh, there are things that we know that uh, any vaccine does offer local side effects and some systemic side effects. Perhaps uh, maybe you want to address, uh, you know, the, the larger concern about other side effects rather than what is known to expect from any vaccination. Yes. Thanks. Um, yeah, I, I won't go into the details of the side effects because I think this will be covered in the subsequent uh, uh, webinars. Um, but I think that the first thing is, um, so if um, everybody um, listening is a healthcare worker, I think um, the first thing that is important for us to realize, I've realized it um, to the many talks that I've given and to talking um, uh, to the public, is that um, um, it is understandable why people out there have a lot of concern. You know, um, uh, uh, when it comes to COVID-19, um, uh, the scientific evidence has moved so quickly, you know, um, uh, uh, even COVID-19 itself, you know, there are people who have been uh, left behind and, um, and um, uh, didn't realize what was happening around them. And uh, it is understandable that there's a lot of fear, a lot of uh, doubt, a lot of mistrust happening. And, um, and uh, the one thing I've learned that uh, we shouldn't do is to laugh off people's concern, um, to laugh off the concerns about um, uh, side effects to the vaccines. Um, the vaccines have got side effects. Eh? I think um, uh, uh, if anybody tells you that, no, I, I, uh, you know, there are absolutely no side effects on my vaccine, he's, he's lying and you shouldn't trust him. Like, you know? The vaccines have got side effects. And, um, and um, uh, most of the side effects are very mild. Um, and uh, most of the side effects uh, uh, have been known, have been described. Um, uh, some people bring up theoretical side effects what if, um, you know, two years later I get cancer or five years later I get, you know, um, an autoimmune disease? I think um, that one most, we know that most vaccine side effects occur in the immediate uh, days to weeks after the vaccines. And now we've got like um, hundreds of millions of people who have been vaccinated already. And um, so there's strength in, in, um, in the numbers of people and, um, and, and many weeks or even months have gone by and we are not seeing any such um, disturbing signals. Yeah, so I think it is important to acknowledge that um, uh, uh, the fears that people have and, um, and uh, see what exactly um, uh, they are concerned about and try to use, if, if, if we do know of the, these, um, some of these scientific facts, then it is important to actually um, uh, show them how were the, how were the trials carried out, uh, what does it mean by 95% efficacy, you know, um, uh, how do they study um, uh, vaccine side effects, you know, um, the pharmacovigilance part of it, which I think will be mentioned about uh, in the later, in the series, um, how careful people are. I think um, um, making headlines around the world now is the AstraZeneca vaccine. And, um, and um, I think in the last couple of days, we have heard how um, um, uh, 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 we have conclusively, or, or at least some bodies have uh, said that um, these um, uh, unusual blood clots uh, are linked to the vaccines, you know, and um, and uh, and I think it is it is it is good that the pharmacovigilance, the the that everybody is actually careful to observe what is happening, and um, and that there's no in terms of cover up or a conspiracy that 
you know, even if somebody gets side effects, they're not going to tell us, you know, right, the government is going to hush it up or the companies will hush it up or the, you know, the, the World Health Organization won't tell us about it. No, I think there's a lot of openness in terms of, um, um, it is right to be concerned about these vaccines, but at the moment, it looks like it's the, 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 the is stacked heavily in terms of um, the benefits of the of the vaccine way way um, uh, um, they they very much outweigh um, uh, the risk of, um, of getting the vaccine yeah? uh, so I think uh, um, it is important to be concerned about the side effects but not be overly concerned um, because I think the the benefits on the vaccine uh, definitely outweigh the the risk uh, in a massive way. Right. Uh, thanks for that. Yeah, I agree on the point, uh, Dr. Ben, that uh, we, we need to look into the broader uh, perspective too. And uh, in the issue of side effects, there'll be other webinars. We will come back with better detail and clarity. And I know some of the questions are basically uh, towards uh, those issues. And perhaps uh, it'd be better to uh, have that uh, webinar uh, to be the better platform to answer specifically for some of those matters. I'd like to bring you to the next question. I'd like to ask why immune response with COVID-19 through natural inf infection uh, is often not persistent uh, or is it persistent? And uh, according to some literature, it appears to fade away after about 90 days. What's your view on this, Dr. Ben? Right. Um, the immune system is actually a very complex uh, system and and I'll be the first to admit that I'm not an immunologist and, uh, and I don't claim to, to, to know this extremely well. Um, uh, but what happens is that um, uh, when we talk about protection against COVID, um, it is not just a matter of antibodies. It also matters which type of antibodies it is. Um, uh, so if you noticed in some of the earlier slides, I mentioned about neutralizing antibodies. So having antibodies to uh, infection um, it doesn't mean anything if the antibodies cannot neutralize the virus. Eh? So um, uh, when we look at, when we read um, papers on this, we, we look, are they talking about neutralizing antibodies? How are the antibodies being measured? And the other question, question. Sorry, yeah. Um, uh, the other question is, uh, the other uh, thing to look at is also, um, uh, that's just part of the immune system. Then you've also got the uh, cell-mediated immunity as well. So the cell-mediated immunity um, brings about the memory, um, uh, 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 the memory aspect of uh, the immune system. So just because even if your antibody levels do drop, but your body has got the, um, the, the cell-mediated immunity is uh, intact, then it can still respond well to the, uh, to the subsequent uh, insult. And that's what many of these vaccines are trying to replicate, um, uh, uh, stimulate the, the, the memory cells as well. Um, and uh, I think there are many different studies that look at the, um, uh, uh, how long these uh, um, antibodies last in the body. I think many other studies show that it lasts for more than six months and, um, and uh, six months and counting. You know? so, so it really depends on which study we are looking at. The, the, the cutoff, I think, is more of um, you know, um, uh, 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 if I had COVID before, when, um, uh, 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 you know, um, uh, uh, when can I receive my vaccine again or when should I receive my vaccine again? And we have put it arbitrarily as, uh, as uh, three months because in the first three months, at least we know um, uh, people are generally protected um, uh, from natural infection. Yeah, thank you for that again, Dr. Ben. Uh, this is a very interesting question. Perhaps a very quick uh, answer on this. Uh, does the COVID 
a vaccine cause false positive for your rapid test kit antibody? Um, and uh, uh, what about the antigenated virus causing a positive response to the PCR uh, antigen test? What's your view on this? Um, the RTK antibody, yes, it will pick up your antibodies if your COVID vaccine is uh, um, is genuine and if you and, if, uh, and uh, if the COVID vaccine did work in you, then yes, your RTK antibody will, will pick it up if it is a good kit. And um, and uh, but it wouldn't cause a false positive uh, PCR because um, uh, uh, um, it only codes for the for the for the for the spike protein, and uh, that's not adequate to pick up the, the, the panel of um, uh, genes that are detected by the PCR test. So you will not get a false positive PCR after your COVID vaccine. If your PCR becomes positive and it's truly positive means you are one of the unlucky people who despite vaccination still contracted COVID. Yeah, so thank you uh, again. Uh, yeah, there's been some um, reported cases, of course, uh, where people do um, become PCR positive despite uh, offering a vaccination history even after it being completed. Uh, perhaps I could add a little bit on that discussion, Dr. Ben. As you know, uh, most of the vaccines uh, are primed to achieve a certain efficacy level uh, beyond a certain number of days post-vaccination. And therefore, until one achieves the um, sort of uh, maximum efficacy level, they're still uh, likely to uh, be infected sometimes, and the symptoms may be very mild to non-existence. And therefore, a PCR test at that point in time may turn out to be positive. Uh, but still the vaccine is protecting that individual. That is important. As far as whether the person may continue to be transmitting the virus or so, that is being investigated, of course. Studies showed that uh, the vaccine, in fact, uh, dampens the, 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 the viral load and therefore it offers the benefit of a reduction in transmission as well. So that is the, the sort of evidence is coming across. But of course, this needs a further validation through a bigger population study. So that is uh, something we all look forward to. The next question, Dr. Ben, is that um, uh, they would like to know the effectiveness of vaccine in special population, particularly in geriatrics and uh, those with uh, uh, medical comorbidities. Yeah, I, I'm, I'm embarrassed to say I've actually got a slide on this and I seem to have uh, forgotten to put it up. Um, yes, the, I, I think they actually looked into this. Um, uh, I think, again, the is, is Israeli group, they actually looked into it and um, they, 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 they had different cutoffs for, for, for people below, um, uh, um, below 65 and above 65, people with comorbidities and people with um, a different number of comorbidities and how it was protective. And, um, and, and the, across the board, the efficacy, um, uh, uh, regardless of age group, regardless of comorbidities, regardless of um, uh, BMI, it was all 80, 90 over percent efficacy. Um, I, um, thanks for that question. I actually forgot to insert that slide. I, I must uh, find it and uh, put it in for my next talk as well. Yeah, so um, it is uh, very efficacious across the board, um, across all populations. Yeah. Okay, I think you, you covered this question. There is any truth that there are lots of cover-up stories uh, to dupe the public into believing vaccination is the only way to end the COVID-19 pandemic. I think uh, you, you did uh, touch on those anecdotal uh, kind of uh, reference uh, points. Some articles, of course, coming from uh, authorities uh, that appear credible, as well as analytics that are hinting to uh, some form of um, 
cover up stories. What's your personal view on this and what is the evidence against this? Um, I, I think um, uh, uh, so, so, so there are countries that have uh, managed to curb um, COVID-19 without having the vaccine yet. You know, I think uh, the well-known examples would be you know, the, um, uh, you know, the, uh, New Zealand, you know, Singapore, Taiwan. They never had the vaccine then, um, but they managed to curb COVID-19. But it came at a very um, uh, 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 and even in in countries like like like, like Singapore now, you know they, they still um, don't allow big social gatherings. Um, um, uh, and the same goes for you know the places like Taiwan and all that. All there's still a lot of um, emphasis on the, um, on the uh, 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 public health um, uh, interventions, and um, and uh, so there's still mask wearing. There's still um, SOPs to be followed and all that. And of course, if you can follow that uh, completely, then actually you don't need the vaccine. You know, um, um, uh, but the vaccine makes it so much easier to reach that because um, uh, when you're talking about vaccine efficacy uh, rates of such high uh, that thing, then it, it, it can help um, supplement a lot of these um, uh, other uh, both public health measures as well as uh, individual, you know, I'm doing a lot of testing and uh, isolating of, of individuals. So all of this, I think they work together um, uh, 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 to, you know, none of us want to see another MCO um, uh, in our country if we can, you know, um, um, uh, and uh, you know, this is one way of, uh, of, uh, of uh, getting towards normalcy um, as uh, early as possible. And so I think it, it does hold out um, a lot of hope uh, from a public health point of view. Uh, okay, Dr. Ben. Uh, so this is again uh, specific to a particular vaccine by name. So rather than addressing uh, the particular vaccine, like here is mentioned Sinovac or Coronavac, I think uh, there is uh, uh, often a packet insert or these are the information that comes along with the vaccine. Uh, in the way it is uh, to give the practitioners some uh, precautionary statements, some contraindication. We know, for example, uh, anaphylaxis risk is uh, a contraindication that has been uh, added on to information. There's also a precautionary information given to uh, those of certain age groups, certain medical conditions, diabetes, for example, that is uncontrolled. What is your view on this uh, about how clinicians and infectious disease specialists like yourself, how do you work around this issue of trying to offer the vaccine at the same time to minimize the risk of any potential or precautionary action that you have to take? Right. Um, yeah, so, so when it comes to looking at a, a drug or a vaccine's uh, product inlet, I think it is, um, it is, it is obviously um, uh, they can only claim to do what they have, um, uh, the, the, the drug or the vaccine can only claim that it is effective in the, in the population that it was studied in. Yeah? So um, uh, in the clinical trials, um, if it was studied for this, then it is licensed for this. And um, so that's why I think those um, advisories come about. Um, but in the real life setting, and especially when it comes to um, um, uh, epidemics and pandemics, uh, uh, then there is, um, there is, uh, 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 necessity to look beyond um, uh, what the official indications are for. And that is what many other countries have uh, looked at as well, and um, to see whether there's any safety concerns. Um, I think the concerns, um, uh, or at least the company, is not so much about the efficacy, but 
about the safety, you know, because um, when you first start doing trials, you don't want to do your trials in um, very, very sickly people. You want to do your trials in, in, in healthy people so that, you know, you can you, you, you face as little um, uh, 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 difficulties in interpreting the data. Uh, you get the data out as quickly as possible. And that is how, you know, Sinovac and most other companies would have, um, uh, would have uh, done, you know. And um, so, so, um, uh, so it is understandable why, why the, the product in the contains uh, information like this. Um, but we on the ground, I think we have to see um, whether the, the, the current uh, evidence and the current experience from other countries as well, uh, whether it is safe for us to, to extrapolate that um, information into other uh, populations and, um, and, uh, and whether there's any specific concerns that we should be looking at yeah and um, I, I think this is being discussed at a high level and it looks uh, likely that um, that uh, we would be, uh, based on data from other countries as well and even the the most well-known vaccine currently the Pfizer vaccine there are some usage that we have gone um, which is beyond that of the product inlet as well so um, uh, uh, there will be some room for us to actually uh, suggest uh, that it be used beyond its, uh, the, the, those, those uh, uh, strict indications. Okay, last couple of questions. I know there's so many interested, uh, so many questions, uh, as I've uh, mentioned earlier, this webinar series uh, is essentially covers uh, much of the clinical guidance uh, that look at vaccine side effects and uh, immunity level at different levels of this uh, webinar. So today I'm going to give some special focus in relation to what uh, Dr. Ben has uh, mentioned in his uh, talk earlier. Uh, so perhaps this question from, from um, Anonymous, uh, is there any specific measures recommended for individuals with autoimmune disease, SLA for example, prior to vaccination? And is there any difference in terms of the vaccines, uh, perhaps from his efficacy point of view or the side effect point of view, with uh, those with autoimmune disease. This is, I think, um, in the mind of many people, certainly. What's your take on this, Dr. Ben? Um, yeah, I think autoimmune diseases uh, is something that uh, many people are concerned about, especially with new technologies being involved in these uh, uh, vaccines, uh, whether it's an mRNA platform or the vac viral vector um, uh, platform that was used to deliver the, the vaccines in. It is understandable why people are concerned, or people, uh, um, especially people who already have uh, autoimmune diseases. Um, uh, uh, but at the moment, I think, like as I mentioned, the data, um, uh, we are talking about uh, hundreds of millions of people who have been vaccinated, and we are not seeing any uh, worrying signals uh, emerging from this. Um, uh, uh, um, many people are looking at it, and uh, we do know that people with autoimmune diseases who are on immunosuppressants, um, uh, immunomodulating drugs, they are at higher risk of getting COVID, and, um, and if they get COVID, uh, they get severe COVID. Um, and uh, uh, um, if anything, um, uh, we are actually uh, suggesting that these these um, uh, immuno immunocompromised or immunosuppressed individuals be actually at the forefront of getting the vaccine and not um, shy away from the vaccine. Um, as I mentioned, um, I can't give you any assurances of two-year data because it just doesn't exist. You know, um, but based on um, um, uh, several months data in terms of patient years, the numbers are really huge and we are not seeing any abnormal signals um, 
based on this. They are also, um, there's not enough time being given among the different tra um, trials to show any differences between the vaccines. Um, but really at the moment, generally, there does not seem to be any added concern for patients with autoimmune diseases. Okay. Um, let me see whether I can get this one thing here. Okay. So perhaps uh, to, to put into context uh, the many aspects of your talk today and your Q&A, uh, maybe you could uh, give us a, um, a summary point uh, from your perspective and also to many other healthcare practitioners out there. How do we um, move to encourage patients to consider accepting COVID-19 vaccine? We know it is uh, still uh, something that is uh, rolled out free by the government. Uh, it still requires consent and there is information offered before and during the process and also that is monitoring during and after the process of being vaccinated and there's opportunity to report any uh, in the event of an unintended uh, side effect, uh, it is uh, still available. So with all of those things factored in, uh, how do we uh, give confidence uh, to patients to consider accepting COVID-19 vaccine? Yeah, I think um, so. So for all of us individuals out there, if you are a healthcare provider, which I believe uh, many of us are, I, I, I really think um, this is our challenge out there. You know, there are, uh, uh, people are reading all kinds of things on social media, um, uh, purportedly coming from um, uh, doctors and uh, um, uh, from people who are, you know, questioning the role of vaccines and questioning um, um, uh, uh, the severity of COVID-19. I think we really need to go out there with the, with the true picture and, and explain things well. Um, uh, uh, all of us um, uh, uh, out there actually need to be um, advocates for the vaccine. Yeah? Because I, I, I think um, um, uh, the vaccines, I think um, uh, uh, they are here now, they are coming in now, and we know the, pro the, the population that needs to be protected the most, like the elderly, those with comorbidities. And it is worrying that, um, that, uh, that uh, there are probably not enough champions out there who are speaking up and uh, encouraging them, giving them the assurance, giving them the confidence to actually take this vaccine. Um, as I mentioned earlier, um, uh, uh, you know, the, my parents are elderly. I've got, you know, my parents-in-law are elderly, you know, the, and um, I, uh, I do understand the level of concern that uh, people have out there uh, uh, for these vaccines, but really I can't imagine any of them getting COVID and coming into the hospital and having to go through what many of our patients have gone through and many of you have seen as well. Yeah, I think um, the, 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 the risk of uh, um, the vaccines are there, but the risks are very, very small. The side effects of the vaccines are there. Um, they are mostly uh, mild side effects, um, but not getting the vaccine is a very bad idea for, 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 for those people in the highest risk. Uh, groups uh, and um, for them, I'm meaning the um, those above the age of 60 and those with comorbidities. Please come forward. Yeah. Um. Uh, by the time the next phase comes, there'll be a lot more data out there to give us a lot more confidence. You know, um, for people at lesser risk of the disease. But now, at, at phase two, let's concentrate on getting um, uh, people who need the vaccine the most to actually benefit from getting this vaccine.
Yeah, I'm, I think we, I'm, I'm not sure how to make it any clearer, but we all really need to be champions. Thank you so much, Dr. Ben, for spending us uh, with us time for, uh, from your very busy schedule. I'm very certain that you are very much in demand. And, uh, and certainly Hospital Sungai Bulu uh, is very much proud of your presence and the work you have done. And so as all of us here at NIH. Now I'd like to thank uh, him personally, as well as on behalf of NIH uh, for making time to uh, share his experience and his expertise in this field. I also like to uh, uh, congratulate him in the provision of the clinical guidance and his teamwork uh, for the rollout of the vaccine in the country. They have detail on the use of the Pfizer vaccine as well as on the Sinovac vaccine. Uh, this will be uh, the, the guideline that uh, we'll bring it up for the practitioners. Now, next week, uh, the topic will be on vaccinating elderly and those with comorbids and those under palliative care. Some of the questions uh, that were raised uh, during the webinar today can be addressed during the session. It'll be uh, conducted by uh, Dr. Riza from HKL, as well as Dr. Richard Lim from Hospital Salayang. Both of them will offer the uh, experience and expertise in this field. And the time will be on the same platform on the 14th of April, 3 p.m. onwards. We look forward to seeing you again. And on behalf of all of us here at the NIH, and to Dr. Ben personally again, thank you very much for joining us this time. And we look forward to joining us again on the 14th. Thank you very much and have a good and pleasant day ahead.